Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So pretend you're a director, like a film director, and you got an IMDb page and there's, you know, there's some well-received indie movies. There's a few prestige TV episodes. You've never really done anything with a big budget. Then one day you head to an office for a meeting, a general meeting with a big time producer. You walk into the room. They close the door behind you, lock it. And she looks at you and she says, hey, you want to direct the new Star Wars that's what happened to Ryan Johnson. So I walked into the room literally having no idea that what was coming. And she shut the door behind me and she said, you know, no one knows this yet, but JJ's not coming back for eight. We're not going out to a bunch of people. I just want to sit down with you and see, do you want to do it? <laughs> and, and you can just imagine how I felt because it's how you would feel if that happened to you. <laughs> That moment, though, I was just, my brain was leaking out of my butt. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Ryan Johnson. He wrote and directed Star Wars The Last Jedi. He'll talk with me about how he got the offer, what the process of making a Star Wars movie is actually like, and why he thinks it's important that Star Wars be funny. The number one thing, if you were to ask me, you know, what does 10-year-old you think Star Wars is, it's fun, you know. And so it was really important to me to get humor in there and to have this thing be a blast, you know, on every level. Then I'll talk with the Go Team. They're the band that made our theme music, the song you are hearing right now. Ian, the band's organizer, says that the most important part about being in the Go Team is knowing how to play your instrument but not knowing how to play your instrument too well. You know, you have to really be able to play, but at the same time, if you play it too well, you're entering into session territory, you know what I mean? So I, I always want a messiness. I want it to sound like it's recording a gymnasium. I want it to have a sort of community feel to it in some way. And finally, how to be profoundly glamorous and profoundly real at the same time, like Sylvester. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ryan Johnson is a writer and director who first broke through in 2005 with his movie Brick. It was a film noir homage, a little Coen Brothers-y, that was about high schoolers in Orange County. He made it on a shoestring budget with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, in the starring role at the time, he was that kid from Third Rock from the Sun. And he did it by scripting and storyboarding every single shot in the movie. Every camera movement, every camera angle was on the page before he put it on film. Since then, he wrote and directed Looper and the Brothers Bloom. And he also directed some of the most important episodes of the television show Breaking Bad. Ryan's been really eager to get the word out about a little project that he picked up a couple of years ago that's just hitting theaters. It's called Star Wars The Last Jedi. It's really starting to pick up steam, so we're glad we could shine a spotlight on it. Seriously, though, Ryan Johnson is a favorite here at Bullseye, one of the nicest and smartest dudes I've ever had the pleasure of talking with. And The Last Jedi is absolutely reflective 
of that. It is exciting and Star Warsy, and it is funny and actually genuinely moving. Now, if you haven't seen Star Wars The Last Jedi, we are going to talk about it. Uh, we are going to talk about the plot, stuff that happens, uh, stuff that if you really want to stay fresh, uh, might spoil the movie for you. That having been said, <laughs> if, you, if you've just been meaning to get out to see it, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I think you've made your decision by now. If you'd rather not hear about the plot, come back in half an hour or so. Anyway, with all that out of the way, Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on Thank the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. Um, so we we had dinner mm, six months ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen you in a long time. And I thought, and I've been thinking this whole time, I've been worried for you. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. I was okay. worried. Well, congratulations about... on the success of the film. You're doing you. great now. But at the time, <laughs> the movie hadn't come out. And yeah. just to show, demonstrate that it wasn't uh, completely irrational, the movie hadn't come out. Yeah. I thought you thought and think that you're wonderful and I've loved your other films. Oh. But I was like, I can't imagine how anyone could ever win <laughs> making a Star Wars movie. Hey, the trick to it is to define your definition of winning <laughs> <laughs> in a very specific way. But uh, you said to me, when when I said that to you, I was like, that's got to be terrifying to be in charge of a star. It's like a billion dollars of somebody's money. Yeah. And uh, I mean, maybe it's even literally a billion dollars of somebody's money, depending on how you count. Right. And, uh, you know, it's at the uh, the hopes and dreams of all these people who are obsessed with the, you know, maybe the most important cultural American cultural phenomenon of the past 50 years. Yeah. Except for maybe football. Maybe. Um, <laughs> and you so, you said to me so plainly that you weren't that worried about it. And you were mostly glad you got to make a Star Wars movie, and I still am not sure that I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's – I don't know, man. It's it's true. And maybe that – I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I kind of uh, – I kind of feel like Mr. Magoo kind of <laughs> like blindly walking forward through all this. But no, I, the thing is, I don't know. You, you have to um, define what you're in it for, you know, and, and what – you're going to get out of it and what you possibly won't, you know. You know, when Kathy Kennedy first asked me if I wanted to do it, um, you know, I took a little time to think about it. And, and what I thought about was kind of why I wanted to, you know, I, I could feel in my heart I really wanted to do it. And I thought, well, it's, it's um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I was able to, first of all, have an incredible experience with some amazing people. I just had the time in my life the past few years and then make something that I'm really proud of that uh, is a very, in its own way, like personal movie for me that I feel like is a Star Wars movie. How did you get the job? Uh, Kathy Candy just came to me. She uh, she's like the boss of Lucasfilm. She is. She runs Lucasfilm, and um, she's a legendary producer. Obviously, she worked with Spielberg. She goes back ways, and um, 
for me, she was kind of the first producer, one of the very first producers whose name I started recognizing when I was young. Like, oh, all my favorite movies have Kennedy Marshall on them, you know. And so she literally, like, called you and said, do you want to make a Star Wars movie? Or did was, she say, can you come have lunch with me and I'll decide if you have the temperament to take my billion dollars? It was or? weirder than that. It was um, – I had had a couple general meetings with her and we had really gone along. And then she called me in for what I thought was another general meeting. Um, just like, a, uh, what are you up to now? Here's kind of what we're doing. Okay, let's keep in touch, like that kind of thing. So I walked into the room literally having no idea that what was coming. And she shut the door behind me and she said, you know, no one knows this yet, but JJ's not coming back for eight. We're not going out to a bunch of people. I just want to sit down with you and see, do you want to do it? <laughs> yeah, you... <laughs> And, and you can just imagine how I felt because it's how you would feel if that happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> you're, a, you're a more skilled filmmaker than I, right? I don't know. In that moment, though, I was just – my brain was leaking out of my butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, nothing can really prepare you for that. Do you remember what you said? Um, I literally do not. I know that I asked if I could think about it, you know, Um yeah, I think she looked kind of confused that I was asking. <laughs> but, uh, but I wanted a little bit of time to think about it, you know, think it over. But um, no, I don't really remember the rest of the meeting. Something that you have brought to the newer Star Wars films mm-hmm. that I didn't see a ton of before is humor. You know, I think there's a fair amount of humor in the original three Star Wars movies. And mm-hmm. there's especially a lot of kind of homage to the film comedy of the, you know, that that kind of dialogue-driven film comedy of the 30s and 40s, yeah. sort of. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of repartee. Yeah. Um, not a, not a ton of, like, jokes, um, relatively. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And not a ton of jokes that are driven by, I mean, this is from my memories, I probably I saw these movies 10 years ago, yeah. but yeah. Um, not a lot of jokes that are driven by the camera. Um, and your film right away has jokes that the movie knows is funny. Mm. It's not a Zucker Brothers movie. <laughs> you know, you're not hitting rubber chickens with baseball bats. Yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah, reasonably yeah. light on its feet. But yeah. I imagine that you had the idea at some point, like, I think this these could be fun and we don't want to make a bunch of new Batman movies where everything is sad. Um, those what? are really cool movies. Yeah. Uh, but. I imagine it was also a choice mm. to be like this is just going to this is going to be more than like a wisecracking character. Well, I don't know. I I that feels like the original movies to me and I I would um I would I would I would I guess argue a little bit at both sides of the spectrum both that you know in in terms of the humor in 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 the Last Jedi, and also in the humor in the original films, I think there's. If you go back and revisit them, there's a lot more of it there than you remember, and some of it is just wisecracky, jokey. But I don't know. I, I, I also, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's uh, just because it's coming from my own personal sense of humor. I'm sure there's a difference between each one of the movies and between this one as well. But I also thought in Episode Seven, I thought in The Force Awakens, one of the things I loved about it was how light on its feet it was, and how it had that great. You know, Larry Kasdan crackle to the dialogue, and there was always a sense of swashbuckling fun to it. I guess, but I also, yeah, I, I was in terms of a conscious choice in terms of the humor. I knew that because this was the middle chapter, I knew that it was going to get a little darker in parts. I knew that we were going to be 
throwing some rough stuff at these characters. I also, quite frankly, knew that we were going to be sitting on an island with Ray and grumpy old Luke debating religion for half the movie. And I, you know, Star Wars has got to be the number one thing. If you were to ask me, you know, what does 10-year-old you think Star Wars is? It's fun, you know. And so it was really important to me to get humor in there and to have this thing be a blast, you know, on every level. Um, I, I yeah. want to ask you about a particular part of putting humor into this movie that yeah. is not a problem for most filmmakers yeah. who are making funny films. Yeah. It is this. When Judd Apatow makes a movie, yeah. great comedy producer and director of our time, he writes a lot of jokes, they put a lot of jokes in the movie on set. They figure out a lot of jokes uh, in the film, maybe through their filmmaking choices mm. uh, and so on and so forth. And then he basically takes it on a road show. Right. It, he shows it to 50 sets of people right. and makes a little chart of what, <laughs> works, <laughs> what works and what, and what doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. And you're making a Star Wars movie where like practically the first – actual group of people who saw it was sitting in an auditorium it's, in tuxedos. It's funny. I have always hated the test testing process where you take a movie, you know, and this several times during post-production, you'll pay for this company to set up a screening of randomly invited people who fit certain demographics that you're looking for. And then they all fill out cards after. And, and you can also listen to more useful. You hear them react to it. And I've always found it to be a torturous process. Um, and it was weird during the post-production of this film to realize I would give my right arm to put this in front of 300 strangers, you know, in in in, in New Mexico, and 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 hear whether the jokes play. Um, it's interesting, though. I mean, I, I you know, that it was a big relief at the premiere that the jokes do play; they get laughs. Now, whether Every single Star Wars fan thinks they're the right type of laughs or whether they think laughs belong in a Star Wars movie we can talk about and I will disagree with. But I think the fact that the movie – that generally it played, I was breathing a big sigh of relief. And it played the way I had kind of manufactured it to play, which uh, – yeah, but it's true. It's terrifying. You don't know until you get to the premiere, and then you're just holding your breath, squeezing your girlfriend's hand until <laughs> it, you hear bones start to crack. <laughs> not, I, not literally. <laughs> I do like the idea of you as a terrified stand-up comic who has to <laughs> premiere a new hour in front of a crowd at Carnegie Hall. That's exactly what it is like. And it's really, really scary, especially in regards to humor, you know, because that's the one thing that's binary. They're going to laugh or they're not, you know. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's scary. What can you do? <laughs> the movie's been out for a while, so I'm going to talk about the plot some. Come on. Uh, and a lot of – I don't think I will ever have another guest on my show <laughs> where a greater proportion of the audience is familiar with the, <laughs> with the subject matter of the program. I could literally – I could be interviewing Cervantes right now. More people will be like, I don't remember. Sancho what Panza, which guy is that guy? Kid? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, by the way, most of my relationships with Sancho Panda. Sancho the Panda? television cartoon uh, version of <laughs> – Don Quixote, which is real. Um, is he a panda? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. hope so. What, do you th- what kind of animal do you think he is? What's your best I'm guess? Not... 
<laughs> it could be. I don't know. <laughs> Good. Go on with your question, Jesse. Sorry. Okay. So <laughs> I want to talk about plot. So like one of – like uh, you pretty much lay it out there. Hmm. Uh, that the you know the first film was largely driven by this search for this lightsaber, mm. this mystical magical lightsaber that belonged to Luke Skywalker, and we have to bring Luke Skywalker back <laughs> by finding this mystical magical lightsaber. And there's a scene in the film where uh, where our new our new protagonist puts the has who has found the lightsaber and made it to the secret island mm-hmm. in, on the space planet where Luke Skywalker lives mm-hmm. puts the lightsaber in his hand oh, I'm doing the choir as you're thinking and he throws it over his shoulder right like forget this right when did you decide to have that part in the movie uh pretty much ve- I mean it was very very early and it was um and it was because if you take Luke Skywalker seriously as a character in terms of him coming out of – in terms of the one thing that we know about him from The Force Awakens, which we obviously don't know much. But the one thing we know is that uh, he's taken himself out of the war and he's on that island. And you know, why is he doing that? That's the first question I had to answer for myself. Not what do I want Luke Skywalker to be? What would I love to see Luke Skywalker doing? What would I – if I drew a picture of Luke, what would he look like? No, I had to figure out from that piece of information why has this person who I grew up with him as one of my heroes, why is he there? Why is he doing that? And as I started doing that, very quickly it became evident to me that he's – you know, he's got to be there for – a reason he's got to be there because he genuinely believes that removing himself and thus the Jedi, because he is the last Jedi from the equation, is a positive thing for the galaxy. And once I kind of hit that and realized, okay, he genuinely thinks that if he brings the Jedi back, it might satisfy the galaxy's, for lack of a better word, fanboys who wanted to see Luke back. But it's going to do more harm ultimately than good. It's going to start up the same cycle. That he needs to remove it so that the light can rise from a worthier source. And he's kind of, and then it's a burden that he's taken on his shoulders of of taking himself out of the fight. And he's essentially doing what he couldn't do in Empire, which is to you know not jump back in when he hears the cries of his friends in danger, but keep himself where he needs to be in in his mind at least. And once you get all that. This kid he doesn't know comes up to the top and with this big gleam in your eye like, here you go, holds hands this symbol of everything that he has done, this gargantuan feat of will to step away from and shoves it in his face with this expectant look. What's he going to do? Fire it up and say, oh, OK, I guess you found me. Let's go. No, if, you, if you're actually tracking where his head should be at – I don't know. It's it's obviously a big dramatic gesture in terms of that, but it seems to me like it, it didn't even seem that that controversial. It didn't seem like oh boy, this is going to really test the waters. It just seemed really like what he would do. So many of the conflicts in the movie mm-hmm. are about people wanting to do simple things and being faced with simple hero things and being faced with complications. Mm-hmm. Um. I think my favorite Star Wars movie is probably Star Wars. <laughs> and <laughs> I also like Empire Strikes Back, people who like that one better. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I really like Star Wars and, um, you know, Star Wars seen through the lens of 40 years later is, you know, still a very impressive achievement. It definitely looks like it invented a lot of stuff. Yeah. But like one of the things that's really neat about it is how clean it is, how simple it is. Mm-hmm. It's 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 just some stuff happening <laughs> because good guys are against bad guys and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So was it an advised choice to set up the idea that I want to have – I don't want to say more than that because it feels like a value judgment, but mm-hmm. something other than that, mm-hmm. right? Well, I think you're very right about the first Star Wars, which was the first chapter in a trilogy. And I think the You force... know what? Time out. Yeah. Yours is my favorite. No, you stop. It is. You Go ahead. stop. So I think you're very right about the first Star Wars, which was the first chapter. And then, which The Force Awakens was the first chapter in, in, in our trilogy. Empire Strikes Back was the second chapter. And we're the second chapter in this trilogy. And if you look, about, you look at where Empire Strikes Back took that very simple hero versus bad guys dynamic, and I guess this is kind of easy to kind of lose the shock of this over the years. The I am your father moment, you know, has become so ubiquitous and ingrained in culture. If you really think, though, about in the context of everything you just described about that first Star Wars movie, what that does is suddenly it it takes, you know, Luke has been able to just project his shadow onto this, and us as the audience by extension, project his shadow onto this faceless, literally faceless bad guy, this personification of evil. And so it's black and white, good and bad, awesome. Empire Strikes Back hit, I am your father. All of that, suddenly this the, the, the waters get muddied. And suddenly that is completely subverted. And the bad guy you thought you could just kill is actually a part of you and a part that you now have to start thinking in terms of a, of a much more complicated arc of redemption. And his reaction to that, that's one of my favorite moments in all the movies is Mark's performance when he screams that no in reaction to that. And um, that's what you know I felt like we had to do in this one. We'll have even more of my interview with Ryan Johnson after a quick break. When we return, he'll talk about working with Carrie Fisher on her very last film. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows. All with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 years or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, the podcast that takes you inside the Latino conversation. Each week, we'll take you into one story that will fascinate and often surprise you. Listen to Latino USA on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. With me now, Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Looper, Brick, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. A warning if you are just tuning in, we're talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi and we're talking about the plot. It might include some spoilers. There's this uh, rap group called The Coup. Mm. 
and a great rap group. You like them very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the front man of that group, Boots Riley, the rapper, now a filmmaker actually, has a movie at Sundance this year. Mm. Um, but Boots has this beautiful song called Where Clean Draws that is him talking to his daughter, basically. And the the refrain basically is that you should always wear clean underwear because you never know when you're going to get hit by a bus, right? <laughs> but it's that, it's that kind of simple, plain yeah. stuff. Boots is also uh, uh, Marxist. And one of the things that he says in this song, just as plain as day, is he says, tell your teacher that princesses are evil. <laughs> the way they got their money was they killed people. Mm. And, you know, I don't <laughs> – like – I had never thought I had never really thought about that until I heard that record. Huh. And it made and you know, when I had kids yeah. and you know, I have a six year old daughter and a four year old son and a baby. Mm. The baby doesn't care. But the <laughs> the four year old and the six year old are going through all this stuff about how stories about conflict and mm. our rulers happen and it's astonishing mm. how much of it presumes essentially the divine right of kings. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of the divine right of kings in Star Wars mythology in the in the stuff that had been accreted over 35 years. Mm-hmm. And there's a few really particular nods against that in mm-hmm. your movie. Mm-hmm. One of them is that you have a protagonist that we had presumed had gained her magic powers by bloodline mm-hmm. who turns out to have gained them through – something else, divine mm-hmm. providence or worthiness or whatever. Mm-hmm. And one is that casino scene, which is pretty explicitly about where the culpability for, <laughs> you know, it's basically banality of evil, mm-hmm. the Star Wars scene. Right. Um, when we have all been focused on the evil of evil. <laughs> you know, everybody's worried about guys with helmets. Yeah. Why are those things in the movie? Well, the, the Ray one, first of all, you know, ultimately the themes that you're speaking towards um, and the notion of – yeah, I mean the most banal way of putting it is the you know the American idea that anyone can become president. But the notion that, you know, it's ratatouille. It's, you know, anyone can be, you know – I forget so how So you're saying phrased. she's sort of a Trump-like figure. <laughs> is that right? I'm going to respond. Looking for, looking for a pull quote You're just here. trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> Uh, but but also, I mean, um, the honest to God truth, though, is that that decision to have her essentially her parent to say no, her parents are not. Not only are they not Luke Skywalker, they're not whoever it is that you thought they were, or you wanted them to be. They're also not important. That actual decision did not come from an ide- ideological stance of wanting to tear down some structure of whatever, of, of privilege. It came from character and story. It came from what is the heart. As I was digging into this, I'm like, okay, we're going to address this in this movie. What are all the options for who Ray's parents could be and which one of them would be the hardest one for her as a character to hear? And by extension, us as the audience to hear. What would be the thing that would challenge her the most? And the answer is very obviously because she's looking for identity and she's looking kind of for, you know, a path to identity. She thought she was going to get it through Han Solo in the first movie. She thinks she thought she was going to get it at her parents going back on Jakku. This movie, she thinks Luke Skywalker is going to give it to her. 
And she still has that threat in her head that, you know, and we do too, obviously, that, oh, her parents are going to define her, is going to hand her her place in the story. And if that had happened, that would have been the easiest possible thing she and us could hear. It's almost weird. It's the inverse of Luke and Vader in the original trilogy where the hardest thing for him to hear was, I am your father. Whereas here, the hardest thing for her to hear is, nope, your parents are not going to define you in this. You're going to have to stand on your own two feet and define yourself. And you're not going to get the easy answer here um, because you're a hero and heroes don't get easy answers, man. You're going to have to figure it out. Uh, there's one last thing I want to talk about. Um, Carrie Fisher died after this movie was made. And she has a wonderful performance in the movie. Mm. She's also not the center of the movie. This is a movie that if we're talking about which one of the original Star Wars gang it's about, it's mostly about Luke Skywalker, although she's very important in the film. Mm -hmm. Did her passing change the way that you thought about the film? Well, it's, I mean, it's impossible not to change, you know, watching it, the, the filter you watch it through. You know, in all of her scenes, it, they become just more, a lot more complicated watching them back. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely it did. And then obviously her scene with Luke um, suddenly... You know, it, it suddenly becomes a, a good a goodbye scene in a much more profound way than than it was before. Um, but it didn't change. We she she passed away over kind of you know around New Year's. We got back after the holiday break and went in the edit room, and I looked through all her scenes, and I had a conversation with Kathy, and um, the question briefly arose: Do we try and? do something? Do we try and like manufacture like an ending for the character or something? And, you know, I felt strongly and we decided pretty quickly, no, we're going to let this performance stand. Um, both because I couldn't imagine a manufactured ending being emotionally satisfying uh, in a way that would be better than whatever you could do at the beginning of the next movie. And also because her performance I thought was beautiful and I thought that every – I knew if we did that, we'd have to lose some element of it, whether it was that scene with Luke or the scene at the end with her and Daisy on the Falcon. You know, um, I want – especially now, I want to leave the movie with Carrie Fisher having told me – giving me a, a words of hope at the end of this movie. And um, I wanted you know, the world to have this performance of hers. You know? Well, Ryan Johnson, I got to tell you this. Um, I've I've uh, loved and admired all your movies to this point, oh. and it's been a pleasure to know you. But this is the end. No, this is. I realize that out. sentence sounded like it was going a different direction halfway through. You just hear a gun cocking. Um, and I was genuine. I was genuinely terrified that something would go wrong with this movie and your life would be ruined. And when I saw it and I loved it so much, I was just I was just so happy. So I just want to congratulate you not only on meeting this absurd uh hitting this absurd goalpost or whatever <laughs> metaphor you want to use, but also for just settling me down and bringing me a little bit of comfort. Anything I can do for you, Jesse, yeah. I'm here for you. I know that's why you did most of this stuff. <laughs> I truly appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Ryan Johnson. Star Wars The Last Jedi is playing at your local art house movie theater. If you want to check out some of his earlier work, and I really highly recommend you do, I can't tell you enough good things about his first film, Brick. It is really one of a kind, a real joy. One day I'll write an outshot about it.
Anyway, let's end with a song that was written just for Ryan and his new Star Wars movie by a friend of our show. It's John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, and according to Ryan's directive, it is called The Ultimate Jedi Who Wastes All the Other Jedis and Eats Their Bones. Stay true to the path, young Jedi. Cleave to the precepts you've been given. Remember those who went before and cleared a way for you. Let your deeds give hope and comfort to the living. Let your deeds give hope and comfort to the living. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, the Go Team. Formed in the year 2000 in Brighton, England, the band is basically the brainchild of a guy named Ian Parton. He recorded most of the band's first record by himself in his parents' kitchen. It's called Thunder, Lightning, Strike, and you'll find our theme song on it. A classic Go Team track has a lot of influences. Hip-hop, marching band music, noise rock, 60s soul. But what makes the band worth listening to isn't that it's some kitchen sink mix of genres. Every Go Team track has a unique voice. It is almost a genre unto itself. It's complex, a little rough around the edges, hooky, sample-based, but still live-sounding. And maybe the most important ingredient is the people who contribute to the band, the other voices that Ian brings in, musicians from dozens of backgrounds and genres. One of his longest-running collaborators is the MC Ninja. She's sung and rapped on every Go Team record, including the latest, Semicircle, which drops this week, and she fronts the band live in concert. Let's hear a track from the record. Ian Parton and Ninja, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Ian, your last record was one that you kind of holed up and made yourself, and you've kind of gotten the band back together for this one. Um, Why did you want to do that? Um, So, yeah, the scene between was a sort of a natural break in things because the, the old lineup. There was basically a romance in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Not, nothing to do with me, man. It was getting a bit abba. There was J- Jamie and Cowrie became a couple, and they had a kid. They grew and, up. Yeah, became normal. And then, <laughs> so so they moved were to out. the country. And basically, jobs and babies and all this kind of stuff started getting in the way. What are the What are the pieces that you use to put together a Go Team song in 2017? Because you. I mean, in addition to the the samples and the band, you also traveled to record. Like, what are the things that are in one of these songs? Well, yeah, I mean, most Go Team songs kind of grow outwards from one idea. Uh, and I'm a hoarder. I hoard ideas over years, potentially, you know. So some there's, you know, a chorus on one of the songs on the album, which is, you know, maybe seven years old. But then I could have something next to it, which I wrote yesterday, so I kind of hoard these little things and I get literally a greatest hits folder, <laughs> you know, of all my best things. And it, there's something good that I think is worth keeping and it will grow outwards and I'll get 
you know, add little things to it, and and I will get samples, and I will are, are those rack things my brains. Ian, are those things pieces of music? Are they melodic ideas? Are they phrases? What are we talking about? All of that, really. I keep books full of slogans. I keep stash all my best drum fills. I stash all my best uh, samples. I stash all all my best melodies. And I raid it and I, I build it up. So it varies from song to song, but often I'm trying to rack my brains about what the song is. You know, does it need a, a French spoken word thing in it? Does it need a, like a community choir? Does it need a Japanese voice? Does it need a kind of a 60s girl group type thing? I feel like there's a lot of folks in indie rock who are obsessed with... The, the aesthetics of sound, um, the way things are recorded and um, the way things present and the kind of textures of different kinds of pop music. But often they are obsessed with those with the aim of recreating them in some way. And it seems like you are obsessed with these aesthetics, but you you also, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like you are obsessed with creating an aesthetic that hasn't been heard before. I mean, when I started, it was about the difference between things and being anti-things, you know, and um, so anti-enemy, anti-production, and seeing no reason why you couldn't combine all these different kinds of things, because for me, there was an overlap with it, you know, it's almost like uh, kind of looking inside my brain and, and my melting my record collection down into one thing. So, yeah, aesthetics is, is the thing that I think lots of bands are missing often. You know, for me, you, can't, you don't just write a song. You, there's a world. I like to imagine a world around the Go Team, and it's quite sort of utopian in a way, you know. <laughs> what does that mean, that it's utopian? Um, it's, the Go Team isn't literally like my life. I'm not like a singer-songwriter where it's, I'm singing about my life. It's, uh, I'm kind of imagining things how I'd wish they were in a way. How do you wish they were? The trouble is when you when you articulate it, it sounds cheesy potentially, but I think, you know, obviously sort of more multicultural, more socialist, more a technicolour, uh, which is kind of political in a way, the idea of not just throwing money at stuff and making it lavish and big production it's much more about making the best of what you can do you know making things at home all that kind of stuff that's what I love Ninja before you join the band I mean I don't know what the hip-hop scene is like in the UK relative to the United States but like were you at school in ciphers and open mics like spitting bars like, did you think of yourself as uh, as a traditional MC, or were you already thinking of yourself as um, something outside of that? I had always called myself a rapper, and everybody who met me, if you met me for five minutes, in that five minutes I would have told you that I was a rapper. And so I was always open to meeting producers and other artists, and so... I was always going into studios with random people to the point where I was in lots of random guys, like hip-hop groups, as the token female rapper. So what did you think when you first heard the Go Team? 
I was like, what the hell is this? I, I didn't understand it. <laughs> it's not that I didn't like it. I just, I didn't understand it. And it's because I hadn't heard anything like it before. Um, but it was really cool to be asked to turn these instrumentals into songs. That was really juicy for me. We'll have more with the Go team when we return from our break. In a little bit, Ian tells me what it was like writing a song for the smash hit Japanese pop group Momoiro Clover Z. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about Here and Now. We cover the day's most essential news with context so you know the why and what's next. A fast-paced snapshot of the world every day. Listen to Here and Now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Ian Parton and Ninja of the band The Go Team. Their latest album, Semicircle, is out this week. Let's hear a song from the first Go Team album from 2004. This is Lady Flash. Ian, what did you want when you were putting together a band for your band? I think I knew that I needed lots of people just because, you know, I needed someone to play a banjo, I needed someone to play... I, I liked the idea of double drumming, I liked the idea of a band that was multi... you know, both sexes, ladies and gents. What was exciting to you about Ninja? Um... I think the fact that she got she got it, basically, and she was brave enough to do it. <laughs> Despite the fact that she just told you she had no idea what it was. <laughs> I never heard she this. She was utterly baffled. You get more points because you've asked a question that no one's ever asked mm. before, and I don't know either, so this is new to me. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think being brave enough not just to do, just to be a hip-hop outfit or whatever or... An R&B thing, just to kind of venture out into something, whatever it is we are, <laughs> to to be brave enough to get into that world was a, was a big um, a big deal. I mean, I was struck reading about the new album Semicircle. You know, the the new single, which is called Semicircle Song. You recorded the video in the states, and I was reading an interview that I think that you did. Ian, and, and you were just excited that you found a marching band with uniforms that you thought were cool looking. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, yeah, I get it. Like, they're, they're dope looking uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always had this thing about, I, d- I do like marching bands for some reason, don't know why, but at the same time, it's, it's not exactly how they are, it's how, the, how I wish they would be. So I'm not particularly into the whole sporty thing. I'm not into the patriotic thing. I'm not into the... But it's more, it's more the, tough, the toughness, the physicality of it, the absolute... You know, when you twat one of these marching bass drums or the, 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 you know, the, the sound of 20 trumpets taking your head off, that's what I'm interested in more. It seems like a very important thing to you in your music, Ian, is that kind of spark of enthusiasm that comes from 
I don't know what it comes from. It comes from uh, something that is above amateurism and below that kind of session player professionalism, that it is the part of music that comes from really caring. Yeah, it's. I think like the Go team is, is f- all about treading a line, it really is, <laughs> for me. It's... Um, it's treading a line of of because lots of the part the lots of the parts i write are quite complicated they're quite you know you have to really be able to play but at the same time if you play it too well you're entering into session territory you know what i mean so i I always want messiness i want it to sound like it's recording a gymnasium i want it to have a sort of community feel to it in some way I love the moment. I think it's on Semicircle Song where you you record uh, some of the vocals on the album with a youth choir uh-huh. from Detroit. And there's this moment where uh everybody uh, 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 some of the voices in the choir are introducing themselves and saying their sign. You know, my uh, my name is Mary, uh, my name is Mary Amatoris. And there is so much personality in that moment of just hearing someone's just hearing someone's voice identifying themselves. That's that's what I'm into. I'm into uh, I'm into the idea of capturing of recording people that have never been recorded before, potentially people that wouldn't think of themselves as singers. There's a great song on the new record, Semicircle, and my guests are Ian Parton and Ninja of the Go Team, uh, called "All the Way Live." And I wonder, Ian, before we listen to it, if you could tell me about what the vocals on this song are. I, I, tr- I heard this song by a... Um, I think it was like an after-school project, basically. It must have been a teacher. We, tr- we managed to track down the teacher, um, but he made this record, and I think it was about 1984, of like an after-school, hey, let's make a record with the, with the kids in this school called Carver High. So, yeah, I, I basically sampled this record and then we got in touch with the teacher who's still alive and he gave us permission to use it let's take a listen to the go team and all the way live from semicircle Ninja, you've 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 got vocals on one of the tracks on the new record. What's the difference between the songs that you perform as the front woman of the band, which you really are on stage uh, on almost every song, and the songs where you're actually laying down vocals in the studio for the record? Um, I think that the songs that. Uh, I'm not on. I have my own way of interpreting them. It's not like a, you're not going to get a karaoke version when you watch it live. It's it's just my way of taking the personality and that the spirit of 
that vocal and kind of giving you my own version. And sometimes I will turn the accent to be a British one. And sometimes I want to give you that American accent that is actually on the track. Um, but it's, I, I feel like I want to, I want to give you what you need when it's live. Well, let's hear She's Got Guns from the new Go Team Records semicircle. Ian, I feel like I understand immediately why that's the song where Ninja is closest to straight up rapping. It's because it's the song, it's one of the Go Team team songs that I've heard that is the closest to a beat, like a hip-hop beat. And I wonder, like, if avoiding the kind of established aesthetics of hip-hop is part of what you're trying to do since hip-hop is so, you know, when you talk about music with a lot of samples that's drum-driven with a lot of horns, you're mostly looking at hip-hop, right? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't define us as a hip-hop group, really. I, I kind of like that we're straddling all these worlds, really. I, th- I think my beef with lots of hip-hop is that it's a one-idea Lots of the songs are one-idea songs, so they'll get a loop and stick a rap on it and call it a song. So I think that's that's one of the things I've trying to always tried to trying to get away from. So you have lots of sections within a, within a song, and it's um, all over the shop. And I, I I think the difference when you look at the album as well, the fact that you could have say a little sort of Mo Tucker inspired little piano song, and then it would come in with this this beat that would take your head off in a sort of public enemy style or you could have some sort of Sonic Youth noise fest next to it. That's what that's where the gold is for me, the, the difference between things at, when you look at it as a whole. You wrote a J-pop, a Japanese pop music record once. Are they, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, stay, what happens in Japan stays in Japan. Mm. That's how it works in the you know music and celebrity world. Yeah, These never, things are never supposed to leave I've the never, country. Never, You're not supposed to know. I've never spoken about that song, actually. I read about it, and I, I immediately Googled it. Um, but this is a group called Momoiro Clover Z. Yeah. The song is called Rodo Sanka. Mm. And uh, it was a... It was a hit song. It actually it it was on the charts and it's on was on a smash hit record. Yep. And I'm going to play some of it because <laughs> I will tell you why I'm going to play some of it. Uh, both because it's interesting that you wrote this song, but also because it is a blast. It is a great song, and I only wish that our listeners at home could see the uh, level of charm and delightfulness being projected by the. I think it's maybe five. Ladies who look like they're like eighteen-ish. Have you seen the video for it? Yeah, it was. It is such a hoot. The it da- is so the great. There's a... is all over the shop, isn't it? Have you noticed? All out of time. It's, <laughs> it's it's all kinds of different stuff. And there's a there's a great part in the video. My favorite part where one of the girls from the band is uh, feeding her turtle. Oh yeah, I remember that bit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and you're yeah, like, you yeah, them. that's what's up. There's some, there's some really great turtle feeding music. Why is she feeding the bloody turtle? Because it's hungry, I presume, Ninja. <laughs> I can't tell you for sure, but that's my best guess. Let's hear this song. So how do you even get that gig, Ian? I don't know. How does anyone I just, get anything yeah, weird that happens in Japan? I just got a random email out the blue asking if I'd do it, and what I remember is that they would... They kept telling me to make it longer. So I think lots of songs over there, are. they kept saying... It was like four minutes, and they were saying, no, it needed to be longer, more <laughs> sections. So I kept, I kept having to add more sections. It was kind of counterintuitive to the sort of Western idea of pop. I send it to them, and then the next thing I see is them in a, in a sort of stadium full of um, glow sticks. And what's weird about J-pop groups is, you know, in the UK, if it was a girl group, there'd be sort of teenage girls into them, whatever. But over there, they were all middle-aged men with these glow sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a stadium full of middle-aged blokes. Yeah, like those the older men really are massive fans of yeah. J-pop. Mm. It's a bit... Uh, it's different to what we are used to, is how I'll put it. <laughs> Let's, I'm going to respect the cultural differences and be very diplomatic. You know, you two uh, started in this band as young people in a band. You're now real grown-ups. <laughs> Steady. <laughs> Almost. And, and, you know, you mentioned that one of the reasons, Ian, that the, that the last Go Team record was a bedroom operation was because some of the people in the band were going off to have adult lives with children and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how this band is different for you as an adult than it is as a gleeful, unencumbered 20-something. Um. I think the, the the logistics of it are a bit of a pain. Just getting everyone physically in a room together because because people have jobs and stuff like that. But beyond that, it really isn't that different. Like I say, it's for me the band is this um, thing which uh, is kind of almost like an idea that can't be touched. What about for you, Ninja? How's it different for you when you're a grown up? <laughs> <laughs> <Are you? laughs> The, the concept of you being a grown-up, that's funny, yeah. is it? <laughs> I, I, I still feel like an unencumbered 20-something, and that's... Mm. that's I, I, I haven't grown up yet. I It's not, is the answer to your question, it's not any different for me whatsoever. I just like, I like music, I like being on stage, <laughs> like recording stuff, like talking about music, being involved in music. It's exactly the same. If you ask me that questions in 10 years' time, I might no longer be unencumbered, but I'd still got just like music. I just like doing it, really. Well, Ian Ninja, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. All right. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. And thanks thanks for many years of the best theme music in public radio. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. Five, (laughs) six, five, six, seven, eight. Ian Parton and Ninja of the Go Team. Their new album, Semicircle, comes out this week. I've had it for a while. My kids are obsessed with it. Go give it a listen. You'll like it, I promise. I don't really promise that, but I think you will. 
Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. It's called the outshot. It is almost impossible to describe how glamorous Sylvester was on stage. I was just watching this YouTube clip of him performing. It's like the late 70s. There's a real spare set, some girders or something. I think it's on French TV. And his band, the whole band are all in black, basically dressed plainly like stagehands, although there is one guy who's essentially dressed as a motorcycle cop. And then Sylvester just whirls onto the stage. And he was a big black guy, kind of tall, hefty, and his whirling is ecstatic. I mean, it is religious. And he's wearing a gown, an evening gown, so bold that it blinds the camera for a second when he comes in. The neckline goes down almost to his waist. There's a long skirt and just the most spectacular sequins you've ever seen. And on his head is a golden headdress with dangling, glittering fringe all the way down the back of his neck. I mean, imagine Josephine Baker if she was twice the size and she was preaching to a congregation of disco dancers. It's a spectacular scene. It makes sense that that song, Mighty Real, was his signature hit. And it makes sense that it was about authenticity because it is hard to imagine Sylvester bringing anything but realness. When he was 13, he was kicked out of his Pentecostal church for being gay. And that got him booted from home, too. And he ended up spending his teenage years couch surfing and rolling with a group of gay and trans black folks in L.A., who called themselves the Discotes. They were rough. His biographer said they were half sorority, half gang. When the Watts riots hit, they stole wigs. That's real. They could deliver a brutal reading at the drop of a hat. They could throw a punch when they needed to. And they had the wildest parties that Watts had ever seen. Their best cishet pal was Etta James. At one of those parties, Sylvester met a guy who invited him to San Francisco. And he ended up moving there and moving in with the Coquettes, a drag group that was well-known then and is legendary now. The Coquettes' shows were satirical. I mean, they were drag shows. But Sylvester never quite fit. For one thing, he was black. There were only a couple of other African Americans in the group. But he also had a, a different sort of perspective. He did perform as Billie Holiday and Josephine Baker. But it wasn't the same kind of camp that his troopmates were serving. I mean, for one thing, Sylvester could sing. In 1972, Sylvester put together a band, and he basically never looked back. He worked San Francisco's gay scene really hard, but he also branched out. Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone put up the money for him to record a demo. 
He got a record deal and he started touring. And by the time disco rolled around in the middle of the 70s, he'd added two singers to his show. They were big, with big voices, and Sylvester called them two tons of fun. They said that when Sylvester and the ladies played their first big hit, dance, parentheses, disco heat, close parentheses, they'd melt the floor. Gay and black culture drove disco, and Sylvester, being gay and black, was in a position to take advantage. Mighty Real was another top 40 jam, but when dance music was forced back underground at the end of the 70s by changing tastes and a sort of paroxysm of homophobia and racism, Sylvester didn't have a channel to the mainstream, so he returned to the gay scene that had borne him. The 1980s were both a brilliant flowering and a terrifying ordeal for gay America. Sylvester, out since forever, was a spokesman. But being black and androgynous in his presentation, he never quite fit in there either. And the terrifying ordeal got to him. In 1985, his husband, an architect named Rick, got sick. He passed away in 1987. The next year, Sylvester marched in the Pride Parade, or actually he rolled in the Pride Parade. He was in a wheelchair. His manager pushed it down Market Street under a banner that read, People Living with AIDS. By the 1988 Castro Street Fair, which was only a few months later, Sylvester couldn't make it out of bed. But the crowds on Castro Street took the theme, which was a tribute to Sylvester, very seriously. They chanted his name in unison, thousands strong, so the sound would carry through the hills of San Francisco and into Sylvester's bedroom. When he died, his estate was deep in debt. His royalties were supposed to go to charity, according to his will, but music industry folks told the executor that, with disco being what it was, old news, that royalties would never get things into positive territory, because nobody cared about disco singers anymore. But the music industry guys hadn't been in the discotheques. They hadn't seen the cockettes. They hadn't been on the floor when Sylvester and Two Tons of Fun were burning down the house. They hadn't been at the street fair with 100,000 LGBTQ voices chanting his name, willing him to live forever. They didn't know what Sylvester meant. Our special guest tonight is probably the most unique and dynamic performer on the disco scene today. If you remember the rock and roll era of the 50s, you will remember the general public's first reaction to such controversial performers as Elvis Presley, Mm -hmm. Jerry Lee Lewis, and Little Richard. In time, those rock stars became legends, and their performances accepted as a mirror image of that era. And now, in the 70s, and with the popularity of disco music, a new breed of performer has emerged. Instead of Presley, Lewis, and the Little Richards, we have the village people, Grace Jones, and Nightstar. In time, they will be regarded as nostalgic reflections of the disco era. Folks would ask Sylvester when he was alive, what are you? Are you gay? Are you a drag queen? Are you a girl? And he'd say, nah, I'm Sylvester. Ladies and gentlemen, with some heavyweight support from his backup singers, the two tons of fun, please welcome the sensational Sylvester. Sylvester. 
Long Shot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where it was pouring buckets of rain. I mean, absolute buckets of rain. And uh, my colleague Daniel Baruella uh, turned to us and said, uh, hey, do you think when it rains, fish are like, cool, more house? Hey, good line, Danny. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien this week. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer at MaximumFun.org is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. Thanks to both of them for that this week and every week. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all our interviews there, uh, along with stuff we found on the Internet, like uh, this week, a half-hour rock opera by the Kinks performed on live television. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 